Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, let's dive in. We're in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34 today. Uh, If you're new with us, welcome. My name's Dustin Daniels. I'm the pastor teacher here at River. And uh, if you need a Bible, feel free to stand up, grab one of those. We got them in the back. That's our gift to you. Uh, Please take that home. We want to make sure that you do have God's word in your hand. And as you turn to Matthew 8, let me review from last week Uh, We had a big conversation last week about fear. The Lord Jesus taught us how to go from being, in his terms, he used the word cowardly. How do we go from being cowardly to courageous? And we learned about that uh, amid a terrible storm that came upon the disciples as they crossed the the Lake of Galilee. Um, We had a lot of stuff going on. We had six key points, and then we had four key four keys of application. Um, Let me review those just to get everybody on the same page here before we dive into today's narrative. Last week, key point number one from last week, we talked about fear and we said that fear is an emotional response to a threat. Now there are many, many definitions of fear, but in the context, emotional, the, the emotional response of the disciples is what we focused in on. And we, we discussed how we can't make good decisions when we don't control our emotions. So the Lord Jesus taught us how to do that last Sunday. Key point number two from last week, we said that faith is a willful, conscious choice to believe. Contrary to today's popular uh, thinking, faith is not about feelings. Faith is about our our head. It's about our heart. Romans 10 uh, tells us about that. We also discussed how faith is a form of bravery. Key point number three. It's a form of bravery. Have you noticed that Christians are no longer the home team here in America? We're not the home team anymore. The the hostility towards Christ, it grows every single day. And if we're going to live out our faith, we're going to need to push through that and overcome our fears to address our fears of being liked and being out of our our comfort zone as well. We talked about how fear extinguishes our faith. Not only do we make poor decisions when we're fearful, but it also chips away at our hopes and our beliefs. It chips away at the truth. We discussed how the disciples were more afraid of Jesus than the storm. So the disciples up until this point, they thought hanging out with this rock star Jesus was pretty cool, right? Healing people, casting out demons, all the rage. Everything changed, though, when Jesus told creation to zip it. That got their attention. And the disciples, they asked this. They said, what kind of man is this? Well, We're all finding out here as we go through Matthew that Jesus is the God-man. He is God. And then number six from last week, we said that fear, it is a natural emotion designed by God. It's to keep us safe. However, fearfulness is not. We are not to live in a a state of fear. If we live in a, a constant state of fear, something's wrong, right? Something's wrong in our hearts. We need to address that. So I, I, I gave you four keys to overcome or at least face your fears. Once again, to, to move from what Jesus said, this, this cowardly nature into the state of courageousness. So number one, we understand, yes, fear is a natural human response, but not only is excessive fear unhealthy, but it's also a sin. And we talked about that. Excessive fear, it must be confessed to God as sin. 
at the end of the day, there, there really is a lack of trust somewhere in our hearts that it, it needs to be dealt with. Number two, we said that fearing God, that's the foundational um, thing in our life as a disciple. We've all heard that phrase, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Dear friends, that's a lie. We are to fear the Lord Jesus Christ, as the disciples uh, discovered in the boat last week. We'll get to Matthew 10, but Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body, cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body and throw them into hell. We talked about how trusting God expels fear. Trusting God expels fear. Proverbs 3, 5, one of the most famous passages on trust, right? Trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. We are not to lean on our own understanding. We are to trust God where he has us. And then number four, we talked about the, the spirit of fear, it must be overcome. As Christians, we are commanded to overcome our fears. God has not given us a spirit of fear. 2 Timothy chapter 1, he, he's given us one of power and love and, and sound judgment. And then we ended last week on this a transformational point, and, and that is that if we're going to confront, if we're going to overcome our fears, we need to begin with repentance. We need to confess that is sin and do some business with God and repent from being scared of all the things that we can see. Placing our trust somewhere else, whether it's money, job, people. Repentance is to confess our fear as a sin, and once again, it is because we have a trust problem. But you know what, guys? The, the willful, the, the conscious effort to leave our fears behind and then run into the arms of Jesus, that's the key. Well, repentance, that topic of repentance, it does bring us to today's passage and today's text is really a sequel to last week's story. After Jesus quiets the storm, he and the disciples, the, they reach their destination to the other side of the lake. But as soon as they roll up, something unexpected and terrifying happens. Jesus is met by two demon-possessed men. Now, speaking of repentance, demons cannot repent. Only people can do that. However, demons are much better theologians than any of us. Uh, so we have a lot to learn from them today. You say, well, that sounds kind of weird. How so? Well, let's find out together. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Just as we have lifted our voices here to sing those songs to the Lord, let's read as a church as as one voice, uh, starting in uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. The words will be on the screen for you. When he had come to the other side, the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us to the herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. When the men who tended them fled, they then went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Wow. Dear friends, these are the very words from the authoritative, the inerrant, the inspired, and infallible word of Almighty God. Uh, please pray with me this morning. Father, the psalmist writes, who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way that he should choose. 
Father, many of us have many fears as we come here this morning in the back of our minds. We're, we're fearful of the unknown. We're fearful of the world. We're fearful of this and we're fearful of that. And Lord, I pray that as you continue to, to teach us about fear, that, that in the, the reading and the exposition and the proclamation of your word, that you would settle our fears that you would meet us right where we're at and calm our anxious heart. And by the time we walk out of here today, you would allow us to take a breath and show us your beauty and your glory and your sovereignty because you've got us right where you want us. And we praise you and thank you for that. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Thank you, guys. All right, well, let's take a look here. Verse 28. So when Jesus had come to the other side, to the region, the Gadarenes, Matthew gives us the location of this incident. He says, the other side. So in the Jewish mindset here, it was understood that the other side, that was in opposition to our side. The other side... Those people aren't like us. They don't look like us. They don't dress like us. They don't talk like us. They're just different. They're weird, right? They're scary. But that's where they're going. They're going to the other side. Growing up, your parents may have told you not to cross over to the other side of town. I remember as a young guy, I was driving to Chicago, uh, my first time in Chicago. I grew up in Indiana, so it was about a couple hours away. And I needed some gas, so I got off the highway, exited, drove a few miles, pulled up to the gas station, got out, and as soon as I got out, I see this slender, older black man come right, he makes a beeline right for me, and he says, son, I can see that you're not from around here, <laughs> and you need to leave. Yes, sir. He knew something that I didn't know. I was evidently on the other side, but that's where these guys are too. That's where Jesus takes the disciples. Back to verse 28, when he had come to the other side to the region of the Gadarenes. So this story here in Matthew, it's caused some angst because Mark and Luke say that this happened in the region of the Gerasenes. And then to make things even more complicated, on the northeastern shore of the Lake of Galilee, there's this little village named Gergesa. And it's Gergesa where there's these large cliffs that overlook the sea. So really it's Gergesa that pinpoints the exact geography of this narrative. So because of these three areas that are mentioned, um, people say, well, see, these are contradictions. You can't trust the Bible. It is fallible. It was just written by man. The problem with their argument, though, is that they don't know the region. Gadara is both a city and a region. So just like New York is both a city and a state. New York City, obviously it's in the state of New York, just as the city of Gadara was in the region of Gadara. So what's going on here is that Matthew focuses on the region, while Mark and Luke, they emphasize the city of the area itself. Um, the whole area is known as the Decapolis, Deca. It means 10 cities, right? So it has many, many names. Um, people growing up there, mostly non-Jews. They're Gentiles. Now, the, the interesting thing about this region especially Gadara, is that the people living there, they were originally from a tri the tribe of Gad. So if you know of anything about the 12 tribes of Israel, when the land was being divided up, the, the, the tribe of Gad, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They stayed on the east side of the river. They never crossed over the Jordan. Big brother Reuben did the same thing. Little brother Manasseh, he thought, you know what, I'm going to straddle the fence here. I'm going to take both sides. And that's what happened. And, and it's interesting to see what happened to Gad. Because look at this. 
Evidently, they went into the, big, the, the pig business, which as Jews, that's an act of defiance. That's an act of disobedience. And here we find the Jews living in a Gentile land, and they're acting like people who don't even know God. And that brings us to key point number one. Once you disobey the Lord in one area of your life, it gets easier and easier to disobey in others. Once you disobey the Lord in one area of your life, it becomes easier to keep backsliding. Back to verse 28. So we got two demon-possessed men. They met Jesus as they came out of the tombs. So here we have another issue with Bible critics. Matthew mentions two demon-possessed men, but Mark and Luke, they only mention one. And other people will say, you know what? This is another contradiction. Same story, two contradictions. Well, it's not really a contradiction because a contradiction is when things are directly opposed to one another. See, if there were two men there, there had to be one man there, correct? The text doesn't say that there is only one man. So what Matthew does, he's focusing on the larger text of the story, the, the larger context of the story, focusing in on both men, Mark and Luke, what they do is they focus on the man who does all the talking. So there's no discrepancy, there's no contradiction. Back to verse 28. So we got two guys, and not only are they two men, but these are two demon-possessed men. And they meet Jesus as they come out of the tombs. So here we're introduced to an uncomfortable theological subject, and that is demonology. In the larger context of Scripture, demons, they're a part of the fallen angels. They rebelled against God before the foundations of the world. Fascinating story. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. But to be demonized, it means to be under the control of demons. So when Scripture speaks of demon possession, it speaks of a person being indwelled, controlled, and tormented by a demonic spirit. Um, demons can at will control a person. They can disable the body. They can derange the mind. Um, we don't know exactly how this works, and it's dangerous to go beyond what Scripture tells us. We don't want to do that. Why? Well, because demons attack people. And as we'll see here, they, they also attack animals. And they do that spiritually, mentally, and physically. So we've got two demon-possessed men. They meet Jesus, and they come out of the tombs. So no sooner had they reached the shore, they're trying to dock the boat, we've got two raging lunatics come racing down the hill. These men lived in a graveyard. And to the Jew, that meant that they were unclean. Now, it's no surprise, obviously, that Satan and demons dwell in areas that are profane. Matthew tells us that they are violent. No one could pass that way. So the violence of these two uh, demons or demoniacs here, they kept these men from the rest of civilization and also civilization from them. So in other words, you don't cross these men. They will kill you. They're insane. We're going to look at uh, Mark and Luke, their accounts as well as we go through this story because they fill in the holes. Mark chapter 5, he says this, This man lived in the burial caves, could no longer be restrained even with a chain. And whenever he was put into chains and the shackles... As he often was, he just snapped the chains from his wrist and he smashed the shackles. Look at this. No one was strong enough to subdue him. So in other words, no one was able to tame this man. That's interesting, isn't it? We don't tame people. We tame animals. In fact, we tame wild animals, and yet people have to treat this guy as a wild animal because that's what he's turning into. 
We don't know whether the chains and the shackles were for his own benefit, for the benefit of other people, probably both. Regardless, it didn't work. Trying to put this guy in a cage doesn't work. These men are so completely out of control, nobody can solve this problem. Mark 5.5 says this, day and night, he, so the guy that did most of the talking, he wandered among the burial caves in the hills, and he was howling. He's howling? And he's cutting himself with sharp stones. So guys, this, this man's story is tragic. Anything and everything that might restrain evil in this man's life, it is gone. His continual wailing and screaming and crying out is from a pain that none of us could ever understand. He is so miserable that his only option is to kill himself. He's cutting himself with sharp stones. And yet, the demons won't let him. So we see Satan's purpose statement here being blatantly acted out upon this guy. Satan's purpose statement is this, John 10.10. The thief's purpose, three things, steal, kill, and destroy. Demons hate people because people are made in the image of God. Um, The demons are literally erasing God's image from these men. They have no personal identity or God-given personality left. Luke tells us that these men are stark naked. Only babies and perverts run around naked. Now, it may be cute for your little toddler to run out the front door for the neighbors to see, completely naked, but you better pray by 12 years old, he's going to grow out of that. (laughs) You're going to have some problems. I mean, when Adam and Eve wore only a a fig leaf, right? God covered them. So these two men, they illustrate what Satan does to humanity. So we've got two supernaturally strong, deranged lunatics here. They're immersed in all sorts of sexual perversion. They are incredibly violent. Jesus says in Mark 5, 9, he says, what's your name? And this man, he replies, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. So this man can't even answer for himself. The demons speak for him. Um, And they don't give Jesus a name. Notice this. They give him a number. Jesus says, what's your name? He says, 6,000. The Greek word Legion, it means army. It means camp. In Latin... It represents power, numbers, and strength. In other words, a legion, it crushes all opposition. And a standard Roman legion is about 6,000 soldiers. And these weren't just regular soldiers, guys. These were elite soldiers of the Roman army. So don't miss what the demons are are saying to Jesus here. The message is this. There is 6,000. Thousand evil warriors possessing this man. That number was supposed to intimidate Jesus, by the way. (laughs) 6,000 demons? Well, no wonder nobody can control this guy. In addition, this man is hopelessly conquered by the demoniac. He's under the enemy's control. There's nothing anybody can do about this. It is a hopeless situation. Back to Matthew, verse 29, suddenly they they shouted, So what do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Mark says this, When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before Jesus. And with a shriek, he screams this, Why are you interfering with me Jesus, you son of God, son of the most high God. In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Luke says this, as soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and he fell down in front of him. And he says, please, I beg you, don't torture me. 
So when you put all these accounts together, right, you can see the demons are in a panic. They're talking over one another. It's kind of similar to the disciples from last week when they woke Jesus up in the middle of the storm. Everybody's panicking. And that's a huge key point for us today. Key point number two. When Jesus shows up unexpectedly, people panic. When, when, when Jesus shows up unexpectedly, people and demons panic. Now, I do find this somewhat humorous that the question that the disciples asked from last week when they said, hey, what, what kind of guy is this? Who is this guy? Who, what kind of man is this, right? The demons are about to answer that question. Verse 29, suddenly they, the demons, they shouted, what do you have to do with us? And here, here's the answer, son of God. So make a note here, the first creatures to recognize Jesus' true identity are the demons. Why is that? Well, demons, like we mentioned, they're fallen angels. Luke's gospel says this, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So when Satan rebelled against God, he fell from heaven. And then not only did, did Satan fall, but one third of the other angels joined in this little coup. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 12. So the fallen angels here are now known as, as demons. And these demons, think about it. They've, they've never seen the second person of the Trinity. They've never seen Jesus in human form. But when they rolled up on shore, bam, they instantly recognize this man is the son of God. I find that fascinating. Makes you wonder what they can see that we can't. Regardless, the demons, they know who stands before them. And they shout, what do you have to do with us, son of God? It's interesting here, the demons call Jesus the son of God. This, obviously, that's a true statement because he is. But they probably say it with disgust, with disdain. What do you have to do with us, son? A common belief in the first century was that secret names grant powers to, to the one who knows the name. So maybe, just maybe, the demons were trying to control Jesus by naming him in front of other people. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that they're in a panic. The demons are in panic mode, and they're just making stuff up as they go. They have no plan whatsoever. Which brings us to key point number three. What is your plan when you meet Jesus face to face? What's your plan? You got one? Oddly enough, it's, it's interesting here, part of their plan was never to plead for mercy. They plead for delay, don't they? Because demons, they, once again, they can't be forgiven, only humans can, so the demons... Now ask Jesus a question, have you come here to torment us before the time? And the answer to that question is, yeah, yeah. See, demons know that Jesus has the authority to do with them as he wishes, when he wishes. However, most people, either they don't really know this, maybe we deliberately reject the fact altogether. But the reality is, we didn't create ourselves, did we? And there will be a judgment day for everyone in front of this Jesus because he is the creator and he is the judge. So the demons realize the consequence of rejecting God. Humans don't, though. Humans have been blinded from the truth by, by ourselves. We tell ourselves. We, we believe lies. We believe the world. And we even, we even have some, some demon influence. Back to verse 29, he says, have you come here to torment us before the time? So let me ask you something. Who is, in your opinion, the greatest theologian? Don't look at your notes. No cheating. Who, in your opinion, is the greatest theologian ever? Answer is Satan. 
If you're going to be the greatest deceiver, you got to be the greatest theologian. If you're going to lead people into error, you have to know how to twist the truth better than anyone. And the demons know the plan of salvation. So know this, that the demons know their theology. They know their Christology. They know their eschatology. They know what's going to happen at the end. They know the truth. They just hate it. They hate the truth. The demons know that they're, they're destined for judgment after the millennium. So they're like, whoa, 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 Jesus, time out. You're early. This isn't fair. So the demons, they understand from all eternity, God has appointed a day when he will judge the world. Key point number four, once again, are you prepared for that day of judgment? It is coming faster than we could ever know. This is a day when he will send all of these demons to a very real place called hell. Luke's gospel tells us that the demons, they ask not to be sent to the abyss. The, the abyss is the final place of Satan's punishment. So in verse 30, um, well, let me just read it. A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding and the demons say this, all right, Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into those herd of pigs. So what's going on here? I mean, this is kind of weird. This is really weird. This seems like such an abrupt transition within the conversation, doesn't it? I mean, but think about it. If the demons know their theology, and they do, and they know that Jesus came to redeem the world and save mankind... then they know that Jesus is there to rescue this man because of his possession. The demons know this from the very beginning, right? They know their Bible. They know Scripture. They know Exodus 34, 6, that the Lord, the Lord is compassionate. He is a gracious God. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in faithful love and truth. And we all go, yay, we know that. Verse 7 continues, God, not only that, but he maintains faithful love to a thousand generations, and he's a forgiving God. He forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. See, the demons knew that they were going somewhere because Jesus made this special trip across the lake to save these men. They just don't know where, and they certainly don't want to go to the abyss. So in desperation, the demons, I, I don't know, they're looking around for a way of escape. They know they don't want to go to the abyss. Their only hope, I guess, was this herd of pigs. And as weird and disgusting as that thought is, inhabiting a bunch of stinky pigs is way better than being thrown into the abyss. Now, this brings up some questions. Well, a lot of questions. I've got one. So de do demons long... For physical bodies. If they can't inhabit a person, they're going to inhabit an animal. That's fascinating to me. So we talked a little bit about demonology. Let's talk about angelology. Angels never possess bodies. They have the power to assume bodies. Demons don't, though. Demons don't assume bodies. They have to take over. They have to control. They have to possess them. So that's a huge theological difference between the holy and the profane. Keep in mind, evil doesn't create anything. Evil can only take what God has made and corrupt it, mock it, destroy it. So how does Jesus respond to the demons? It's like demons asked for a prayer, right? Well, surprisingly enough, Jesus answers the prayer. He says, go. If you have a red-letter Bible, uh, notice that that word go stands out from the black, doesn't it? I love that. More literally, it's you may go. What Jesus is doing there, he's granting them permission. So as strong and powerful as this legion is, obviously it's no match for Jesus. Remember when the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a demon? Remember how he responded? Matthew 12, 29, he says, 
For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Who can do that? Only somebody who's stronger. And that someone is Jesus. Verse 32, so when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they perished in the water. I bet that was something to see. I mean, what would you think if you saw a herd of 2,000 javelina making way through Old Town? That'd be something to see. Now, at first, this might look like an act of mercy on Jesus' part for the demons, but it's not. This is an act of judgment. Notice what happens here. Those pigs don't just go about their business doing whatever pigs do. Something changed, right? They're not the same pigs. They have been demonized. And what the demons did to these two men, they're now doing to the pigs, so for reasons unknown to us, the, the, the physical pigs, they cannot handle demon possession. So if you're an animal lover, like me, you really don't care for this part of the story. But don't shoot the messenger. People ask, now wait a second, time out, why would Jesus kill all those pigs? Well, that's the wrong question. And when you start with the wrong question, you'll always get the wrong answer. Jesus didn't kill those pigs. The demons did. And also, notice here, guys, those pigs are not pets. They were destined for slaughter anyway. The story is not about the pigs. So what's it about? Well, verse 33. After that happened, the men who tended them fled. I think that's an understatement. They went into the, into the city, they reported everything, especially what happened to those who were demon-possessed. So many people also make a big deal about the, the financial loss of the pigs dying here. Please note, money is not the subject of this text. Nowhere are finances mentioned in this text. Back to verse 33, they went into the city, they reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. See, the subject matter here is verse 33, is these two men. The fact that demons destroyed 2,000 pigs is nothing compared to the fact that Jesus delivered these two men from the power of Satan. Verse 34, the whole city came out to meet Jesus and revival started. Is that what happened? Well, let me check my translation here. Let me see. I need a new one. No, it says that that the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave. They said, Jesus, you've got to leave. You've got to leave now. So here we got the first opposition to Jesus in the Gospels. Why is that? Mark tells us. The crowd soon gathered around Jesus. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, and he was, look at this, he was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. And everybody else was afraid. Everybody else was terrified. So the townspeople saw a once crazed, psychotic man now seated and in his right mind. They've never seen that before. Who, long, who knows how long this has been going on? Could, could be years, could be decades. I'm guessing a long time. This man's posture, he is seated and he is sane. He reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words to the, Ephesians, the Ephesian church, and I love this. He says, once you were dead because of your, disobedi your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world. Obeying, look at this, obeying the devil... Wow. The commander, the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us. We, we all used to live that way. Following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everybody else. 
but God. Don't you love the buts in the Bible? But God. So rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. See, it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ. And look at this. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Dear friends, that's amazing. This man is seated, clothed, and saved. Not only is this man seated physically and spiritually, he is also clothed physically and spiritually. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, he said this, All who have been united with Christ, and that's what's happened here, in baptism have put on Christ just like putting on new clothes. He is washed clean. This man is forgiven and free. But you know what? Townspeople don't care. They don't care that God has rescued this man, this man or these men, both of them, from death to life. Now, they're not angry and they're not resentful about this thing, but they are scared. That's what the text tells us. They're afraid. So when, when unholy people come face to face with the one true living God, the holy God, the thrice holy God, people are terrified. And that's what's happening here. Now, Jesus did the town a big favor, right? He cast out the demons. He now opened up this part of the town. It's, it's now safe to travel. But they see Jesus as too powerful. He's too unpredictable. See, the, the townspeople, what they tried to do is tame these two men, but they're not even going to try that with Jesus. <laughs> they just want him to leave. They can, they can handle the pigs, but they can't handle God. People want religion, not redemption. So they ask Jesus to leave. The crowd asks Jesus to leave. Why? Because he fixes things. He heals people. But the reality is that most people don't want to be healed. Most people want to function inside their dysfunction. But Jesus loves people too much. He's not going to allow people to do that. Jesus meddles in people's lives. And yet the world doesn't want anybody meddling. The world doesn't want anybody tinkering underneath the hood. So what's Jesus do? They tell him to leave. What's he do? Matthew doesn't say. Mark does, though. Mark 5.18, Jesus was getting into the boat. He complies. You don't want me? Okay. No problem. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't fight with them. He doesn't call down fire from heaven. He says, no worries, I'll leave. This is, this is funny, though. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. So this, this demon-possessed man, he is so grateful, he's like already in the boat. <laughs> Where are we going, Jesus? What are we going to do? Can you blame him? <laughs> I'm not leaving, Jesus. Uh-uh. I'm holding on to you. I'm not leaving you. Mm-mm. Verse 19, Jesus said, no, 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 no. Here's what I want you to do. I know you want to come, but I need you to go home to your family. This man had a family. Wow. And I want you to tell them everything that the Lord has done for you. I want you to tell them how merciful he's been to you. So what's he do? I love it. He's like, aye, aye. Verse 20, so the man started off to visit the 10, 12, uh, the ten towns of that region, the, the Decapolis there. And he began to proclaim the great things that Jesus had done for him, and, and everybody was amazed at, at what, uh, what he told them. I bet. Can you imagine that testimony? I was once possessed by a legion of demons. I meet this guy. I was once blind. Now I see. 
Jesus did three things for these men. Key point number five. He restored them. He restored them to sanity, society, and service. This man is actually the first missionary to the Gentiles. And this guy is so good at being a missionary. We're going to see proof of that. You know the story when Jesus feeds the 4,000? You know where that was? It was in the same area. It was in the Decapolis. Mark 7 tells us that. Once again, this is a Gentile region. How did all the, the non-believers, how did all the Gentiles find out about this Jesus? 4,000 men times that times three or four with families. How did they hear about Jesus? From the testimony of this guy. Isn't that cool? I find that amazing. Well, today's passage, obviously another amazing piece of scripture here. The main point is this, is that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to save sinners. We've seen Jesus' power over the last few weeks of, of his healing power. He cast out demons before. His power over nature. And now the, his power over even a legion of demons. So besides Jesus, we've got two other characters in this story. We've got the sinners who are now saints. So we've got the two ex-demon-possessed men. And then we've got the, the townspeople who asked Jesus to leave. And my question to you this morning is, which group are you in? Do you have a testimony? I was once blind, I did this, I meet Jesus, and now I'm this way. Are you a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? Did you sign a card? Did you walk an aisle? Did you raise your hand? Guys, did you know that none of those ways are in Scripture? And the reason for that is because that's you doing something. And Scripture tells us over and over and over again that um, we only come to believe through God the Father. And in His mercy, we respond to His grace given to us. How do you know you're a Christian? Like I mentioned before, that the text reveals this judgment day. We will all see Jesus face to face. Are you ready? Or is church just like this, just check that off and I'm good? Has your life changed any? Do you love God? Do you love people? Or you, you walk around like, you know, you've been baptized in pickle juice. You're just mad all the time. Angry, grumpy. Has your life changed? When you look in your rearview mirror, has it changed? And dear friends, if it hasn't changed, I'm begging you to do some business with the Lord. Because this is no joke. Maybe you're in the other group. Maybe you're with the townspeople who asked Jesus to leave. Maybe, maybe you feel like you're Someone asked you here to church today, and we're glad that you're here. I really am. Maybe someone drug you to church today. That happens all the time. I get it. And if that's you, I would just submit and really ask a question. Why, why is it that you would ask Jesus to leave? Why do you want to push Jesus away from you in your life? Why is it that you believe that this is not the word of God and Jesus is not the son of God? I, too, would ask you to do some business with the Lord today to see what's really in your heart. And look, guys, if you've got questions about this, I'll be up front. We've got a prayer room through the foyer and to the right. But if you've got spiritual questions today, I pray that you would, you would ask. You would get some help. You would at least start the conversation. Father in heaven, 
Thank you. Thank you that you have shown us the plan of salvation, that you, you view us as this man who has lost his mind, who continues to abuse people and destroy himself. That's a picture of all of us before we meet you, Lord God. Thank you for doing something that we could never do, that you decided to solve the problem by stepping down off your throne, Lord Jesus, being born of a virgin. You have no sin. You lived a perfect life, and you died a substitutionary death. You died on the cross. You've paid the debt. You have accepted. Um, you have paid our sin debt with your own blood. You've cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. You were taken down off that cross. You were put in a grave. And you had the audacity to walk out of that grave three days later, just like you said. Just like you promised. And now you sit at the right hand of the Father. Saying thank you is never enough. Lord, it brings us to our knees to worship you today. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the forgiveness that comes through Christ alone. For those of us who are continuing to wrestle with this idea of the gospel, Lord, I pray that, that you would meet us where we are to realize that this broken world, there, there's got to be a reason for it. There, there's got to be something more. There's got to be a, a message and a hope that's greater than myself. And Lord, we pray that you would put people alongside of us who have these deep spiritual questions to answer them and and continue this conversation that started today. Lord, we're a grateful people, and we pray that we've made you smile today as a church as we come together in unity and love. We pray for the Verde Valley. We pray, Lord God, that we would, uh, we would recognize when somebody is, is reaching out spiritually and that we, we would step in and be like this man that you healed that we would share the gospel. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.